So um, <coughs> tonight is our last night. And I feel a little sadness saying that. It's been such an honor to be here, to be with you all, practice together. And um, yeah, I've talked with every one of you in groups and individually and just <clears throat> can feel um, just this, I'm very touched with the sincerity. There's a certain rawness and vulnerability to meet and talk about things that are deep within us, real, real, and so it's very honored to be in this way with each person. And of course, it's really the tip of the iceberg, there's so much that we all hold as human beings. But I want to thank you, it's, it's been very dear. I do it again, we can start again tomorrow. <laughs> Get another five days. And within this practice, we no doubt are cultivating awareness. And in that awareness, we begin to see just more deeply the murmurings inside our own mind and heart. So in so many ways, I feel like this practice, and really even like the heart of MBSR, the heart of all mindfulness-based approaches, really, to me, boils down to very two profound things, and that is awareness and love. That's what we're practicing, that's what we're teaching. Awareness and love, or mindfulness and love, attention and love. This quality of you know, bringing awareness It's like, like two wings of a bird, this awareness and love. So tonight I want to um, bring these two together and speak about uh, reconciliation, loving kindness. It's a way to perhaps um, to make peace. I have a, a deep aspiration inside me <clears throat> that, that, that hopes that um, an aspiration that by the time that I'm on my deathbed, which of course, as we know, could be at any moment, but maybe later than sooner, but that the aspiration is that um, that I will have made peace with, um, with myself and with others, with the world, with life. That's my goal or aspiration, one of my goals and aspirations in life. And because of that, it really reveals to me all the work that I need to do. Because... Um, when I look at everybody who has kind of fucked me over since I was born, and I, I recorded it, it's in, it's in a book, a very big 
book in very small letters. <laughs> Got a lot of work to do. Just even that funny little look, I got it written down. <laughs> Somebody I don't even know, I wrote it down. <laughs> so you know what I mean. And um, it's a lot to heal thy heart. I have a, a wonderful teacher, my wife's mother, Charmaine, and you know, she had, um, you know, in many ways, a, uh, she was a grand matriarch with, I don't know, 20 or 30 grandchildren. She was so loved. She'd always write uh, a Christmas note or a happy birthday card to us and, and to all of her family. And she'd always end, and she would have the same ending to everyone in the family. It would always end with, your special love, mom. Such a beautiful thing. She would say that to everyone. You're a special love mom. And so that's the type of person she was. And yet I know in her life she also lived with a deep betrayal of a husband that left her and had an affair. And um, so you know, there was pain also in her life. And yet... I, I never saw her like harp on that pain or feel resentful and actually the opposite of at times asking about how he was and hoped that he was okay. And I, I could sense that she was meaning this sincerely. That was very, very touching for me. I realized that Charmaine is really one of my teachers, the teachers of reconciliation. I wanted to be like that too. So I've been I've embarked upon this um, journey of making peace for some time now. And to me, it reflects three particular areas that are very important to experience some peace. <clears throat> and this is the areas of making peace to oneself, for the times one has been hard on oneself. The second is to make peace, to reconcile to the times that I have hurt another. And thirdly, reconciling to those that have hurt me. So this is a three-dimensional practice reconciling to the times I've been hard on myself, reconciling to those I've hurt, reconciling to those that have hurt me. This is a very big work, and a noble work, and a good work. In regards to the reconciling to ourself, this is a, a big work for many of us, because many of us at times have these self-loathing narratives, these self-loathing beliefs. And this is why I think it is so important that we, in the practices of insight, that we really go deep into these narratives and stories that have enslaved us. 
You know, I shared with you last night about this one woman that her mother used to say, I wish I never had you, and the king minus, everything you touch breaks. It's holding above the claw. I mean, there's many different stories that you know, we could say that where our power was taken away and we were made to feel small or shamed or humiliated. And so this making peace with ourselves is a big endeavor. And, you know, I want to say that the deepest way of healing ourselves is to understand and see through these stories that we have believed to be true. I know it's very common these days to put our hand on our heart as an act of self-compassion, and that is really good. This is reminding us. But what's even better is understanding why I have to put my hand on my heart. Because otherwise, it's kind of like an antacid tablet. You, put, you, know, you have an upset stomach, you have some antacid. But you, you know, every now and again, somebody says, well, I wonder how you're living your life or what you're eating. But no, no, we don't do that. I'll just have my antacid tablet. <laughs> so the, there's reasons why we have to put our hand on our heart. And, and so the insight practice helps us to see more clearly what is the stories that I believe in about myself that I have to put my hand on my heart. Now, don't get me wrong, the hand on my heart is a good thing, but to understand what's driving that is the potentialities of the most deepest healing we could ever experience. And it's a big work. It's a big work. Carl Jung, he speaks about it. He says that um, I can feed the hungry, I can forgive an insult, I can love my enemy, and that these are great virtues. But what if I should discover that the poorest of the beggars and the most impudent of the offenders are all within me, and that I stand in the need of the alms of my own kindness? that I myself am the enemy who must be loved. What if I should discover that the poorest of the beggars, the most impudent of the offenders are all within me, and that I stand in the need of the alms of my own kindness, that I myself am the enemy who must be loved? Perhaps the deepest form of liberation is to begin to see through those stories that we have believed so deeply of our own diminishment, our own unworthiness, our own inadequacy, our own shame. This is a very, very important part of our healing. This is why in the Dharma, to see through these stories is the way to liberation. Just as the Buddha said, he's experienced the unconditioned, and so what that's implying is he's seen through all the conditioning that's been fueled by our greed and hatred and ignorance and experienced nibbana, freedom, peace. So the reconciliation to the times I've been hard on myself, and I think it's a very important practice. 
And perhaps part of this practice is to recognize that everything that we have done in our life has led us into this moment. And, you know, here we are. This is the rubber meets the road. There's no denying that every single thing that we've done in our life has led us to this moment because you're here. You can't argue. And so perhaps part of that insight is understanding that all of these different parts, the good, the bad, all been part of this journey that has led us into this moment. Looking back at the times when we've been so hard on ourselves, the beliefs that we had, coming out of our own woundedness, our own fear, our own pain. So this journey of reconciling to the times I've been hard on myself is beginning to see through those stories of our inadequacy. This is a, an incredible endeavor to begin to free our own hearts. Making peace, making amends, reconciling to the times I've been hard on myself. And I think if we're very honest, many of us would acknowledge sometimes there's even some violent ways. I remember one time in an MBSR class, we were going around the circle, and there's a woman probably my age, <laughs> 66, and she had this powerful insight, and she began to share it with everyone else. She goes, you know, I, I became aware this past week that I don't think there's been one day that I haven't, in my entire adult life, haven't called myself an asshole. And someone said, well, I don't call myself that, but every day I call myself a dummy. And other person said, well, I don't do that, but I call myself stupid, or I call myself ugly. And it was like amazing going around this circle and hearing this amount of self-loathing that was happening on a day day basis. Born out of our stories, our beliefs, our narratives that have held us hostage and enslaved. Can anybody relate to that? You may not want to raise your hands and have other, <laughs> other people see that you're the only one in the entire group. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. You know, one friend of mine said that if you treated others the way you treat yourself, you'd have no friends whatsoever. <laughs> you know, if you treated your friends the way you talk to yourself, you wouldn't have any friends left. How hard we can be on ourselves. This belief of our own inadequacy, deficiency, our own uh, ugliness. It's a beautiful line from um, a Galway Canal poem about St. Francis in the Sow, and it says, sometimes it's necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness. Sometimes we have to remember that loveliness, we've forgotten it. And maybe for some of us, due to upbringing, we never learned it. We were never even told that we were lovely.
And I think one of the most miraculous things about mindfulness practice is that we can begin to see these narratives, these stories that we tell ourselves and begin to possibly recognize that that's not the whole picture. This identity, I keep on coming back again and again, identity, identity, identity. What we're identifying with is learned and shaped by our experience. This is so important to know because it's not the whole story. It's the story that we believe to be true. But with self-awareness, we can begin to break the self-referencing. We can notice something new. So this journey of reconciling, making peace with ourselves. And the second area is making peace to those I've hurt. Knowingly or unknowingly. There's times perhaps due to my conditioning, my unawareness, my woundedness that I have hurt another. We don't often like to admit that to ourselves or to another. And sometimes, of course, is the righteous indignation, the, all the, the excuses. But putting them aside, yes, there may be times, humble pie, that I have not been so skillful and I've hurt another. Can anybody be honest and acknowledge that? <laughs> yeah. We're human, and you know, just as um, you know, at times we have our blinders. We, we want to protect ourselves. We um, are tired or impatient or whatever. There's times we just, we've hurt another. Perhaps coming out of our woundedness, our fear, our unawareness. <coughs> There's a beautiful teaching in the Dharma. Pali is called Hiri Otapa. And it had, there's a very poetic definition for this, and it's called becoming a guardian of the world, a protector. And what that means is, because sometimes we may wonder, how do we pay it back for those that we've hurt? And of course, we can say the famous beautiful two words, it's called, I'm sorry, which is also incredibly important. And of course that sorry can apply to one that's alive, and if, even if one has passed, there still can be reconciliation to those you've hurt once you recognize that you actually have hurt. And becoming a guardian of the world means that when you realize that you have caused some pain to another, and then you make an internal deep, deep intention to try as best as you can to not repeat that action, except the times when we have amnesia due to our conditioning. And then, of course, we wake up from that amnesia, and then we try again. And what is that trying again? That trying again is to not to repeat that action that caused harm. 
It's a very beautiful teaching. That's how you pay it back by not doing it again as best you can. So that way it's, it's framed as now you become what's known as a guardian of the world. It's a very beautiful teaching. You become a protector because you're no longer doing that action that causes pain. It's a very beautiful teaching. That's how we pay it back by not repeating it. There's a very powerful story that I'll, I'll share with you about that. It's kind of an extreme story. But some years ago, I, I met a Zen priest. His name was Claude Shin Thomas. <clears throat> he wrote a book called At Hell's Gate that I highly recommend. And before he was a Zen priest, um, he grew up outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, in the United States, and um, his family uh, were military people and went back a few generations. And during the Vietnam War, he enlisted into the service to you know, serve the country. And as he said, um, he, he was um, trained well, and his job assignment was to go on helicopters and have a machine gun and kill as many people as possible, the enemy. And by the end of the war, he had killed over 350 men, women, and children. He would say that you know every time he'd go out on a mission, they would do bets. Whoever got the most kills would get a little bag of heroin or some cocaine or whatever. He said I, I, he won a lot of those bets. After the war, he was a drug addict, living homeless out on the streets out in Pittsburgh. Very down and out, crazed by what had happened, PTSD. And some woman social worker, somehow he caught her attention. And she would come and visit him from time to time, give him some food and talk with him a little bit. And then she started coming and saying, there's this... Uh, workshop happening and I want you to go. He said, I'm not going to any workshop. Because if there's a workshop coming, she'd come back, there's a workshop coming, I want you to go. And she goes, I'm not, I'm not going to go. But then she'd come back again, there's a workshop coming. And she was being a real pain in the ass, he said. So finally I said, I'll, okay, I'll go, just so that she don't come and bother me anymore. And so he went to this workshop, and it was actually given by Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a Vietnamese meditation teacher. And he was spending time with American vets, helping to heal the wounds of war, which is quite outrageous, because he's from Vietnam, and many of his people have been killed and murdered, and yet he's helping the service soldiers. He knew the amount of suffering they had. And so Claudia Shin Thomas took um, this workshop with Thich Nhat Hanh, and it actually was a, a, a catalytic experience, and he actually began to start to meditate. That social worker saw something in him that he didn't see himself. But he really, he was so touched with the authenticity, the genuineness, being with fellow soldiers who had been through hell like him, 
and Thich Nhat Hanh, this compassionate and wise and kind being helping to serve to heal these wounds, he began to meditate. He gradually began to clean himself up. He became um, sober from drug addiction, got into rehab, housing, began meditating more and more. And then he had heard of another Zen group called the Zen Peacemakers Order that was founded by uh, Bernie Glassman. And he really connected with the Zen Peacemaker Order. He began to move in and live in their community and practicing very intensively. And at a certain point, he came to Bernie Glassman and said that I want to ordain as a Buddhist monk, a Zen monk. And Bernie, knowing his past, said, that I, I will ordain you, but we're, we're going to do it in, in a particular place. And so they um, made arrangements, and then they flew to Poland to Auschwitz. And at the train platform of where, where Auschwitz is, they ordained him as a Buddhist monk. And Claudia Shin Thomas has a little sense of humor. He says, and then I took a left after I was ordained, and I began to walk. And I walked, he said, one and a half years overland from Auschwitz to Saigon, Vietnam. And what Claudia Shin Thomas does is wherever he goes, he tells what it's like to have killed 350 men, women, and children to anybody that will listen to him. I heard him tell the story. He goes to war zones, prisons, areas where there's a lot of violence. And like, you know, people look at him, little white guy with shaved head and rose. What the hell does he know about anything? And then he opens up his mouth and it's like, wow. Even to this day, he'll travel anywhere and tell his story. And he, he's lived it. Like, you know, make no mistake, I was taught that they weren't even people. They were objects just to be eliminated. And, and then, of course, his realization that these were people and the horror of what he did and what he lives with. And the only way that he can heal is tell anyone who will listen to him what is it like to have killed so many people and that peace is the way. Claudius and Thomas is a guardian of the world now. He's a protector. Making peace to those you've hurt. That's how he's paying it back. He knows the horrors.
reconciling to those that have hurt me. Not easy. Don Miguel Ruiz says, we must make amends for those we feel who have wronged us. Not because they deserve to be forgiven, but because we love ourselves so much, we don't want to keep on paying for the injustice. It's a powerful teaching. So long as we continue to harbor resentment and grudges, it's like a poison, poisoning our own hearts. It is so painful to live with a hardened heart. Not easy to forgive, of course, those that have hurt you. Some of us here may have been extraordinarily violated. But perhaps we can begin to neutralize the resentments that are inside us that are so poisonous, so toxic to our own well-being. And perhaps just as we begin to deeply understand the times that I have hurt others that came out of my own unawareness and my own fear, my own woundedness, my own pain, perhaps those that hurt me, that it came out of their own unawareness, their own fears, their own pain. And again, not that it excuses those actions, but perhaps it brings understanding to them. And again, that living with this hardened heart, with resentment, is just so deeply, deeply painful. As a matter of fact, it can be unbearable. My wife and I had the opportunity last um, June uh, to teach a retreat in Bogota, Colombia. And we were very touched with the Colombian people. They've been through over 50 years of conflict. And there's multitudes types of conflict that's very complex from the narcos to guerrillas to militias to all different types of um, you know, groups fighting each other. Just in recent years, there was at least an attempt to have a, a, a peace treaty, though there's still a lot of volatility there. It's very interesting being there because um, we were with my friends who hosted. And um, wherever we park, like in parking lots, um, I, I would notice everyone backs in. And I mentioned to my friend this, and goes, oh yeah, we, we always back in because we don't know if we have to get out fast because you drive straight out. I don't have to think about that where I live, about backing up into a parking space. They do every day. Have you ever thought about that? Probably many of you not, huh? No. That's their everyday life, backing in because you don't know if you need to get out quick. 
we were very touched with the Colombian heart when we were there and all these young people into mindfulness and wanting to make the world better, to make Colombia better. Our hearts just broke there. <laughs> we were teaching in a Christian convent like this, but very different, in that we were told at 8 o'clock at night, all the doors are locked. You can't get out because you don't want to go out because outside is attack dogs rolling around the property, making sure everything is safe. <laughs> oh, my God. There's attack dogs out there. I kind of go up to the door. I'm kind of look. I never did see an attack dog, but they, you know, there's like about four of them that roam the property to keep it safe. You know, I just think, well, if there's a fire, how do we get out of here? And if we get out, then we got these attack dogs, but I'm not going to worry about that. <laughs> it was all made of cement. But in Bogota, our friends brought us to um, an exhibit called Fragmentos. And... Um, as you walk towards this exhibit, there's actually, um, it's in like a, a yard, of, a, it's in a city, and there's a, there's a yard. And there's an old, decrepit building that's fallen down around the corners of it. And then inside, they built a brand new, smaller building inside the ruins with all, it's all glass maybe just a little bit of framing. It's relatively all glass. And then you look inside, there's just a floor. There's no paintings on the walls. There's just glass, these white walls, and a black floor. And they're bringing us to this exhibit. And... Um, so I wasn't quite sure what we're going into here. And, um, <clears throat> but then there's some brochure explaining a little bit, and then there was a video. So I read the brochure, and it's was like, whoa, and watched the video, whoa. And that black floor is actually made of big, like maybe one meter by one meter uh, tin. And so when the um, peace treaty was signed, the government offered some rewards for people to donate their, to hand in their guns. And so about 18,000 guns were donated, were given. And this artist, uh, she was ahead of the project. Um, she had all of these guns melted. And then they were melted into these sheets. That was the floor. But more so, as I watched the video, these sheets were still kind of rough. And so they were put on tables and they showed the workers. They had to like pound. The, the sheets pounding and pounding them. And then they began to interview some of the people that were pounding the sheets. They were all women. 
they'd all been sexually violated during the years of conflict. And they interviewed some of the women, and some of them said they were so thankful for this project because they have kept inside their hearts so much resentment and anger. And they, one woman said, like, it's just been destroying me. It's just been destroying me. So now I can just bang this metal and bang this metal and bang this metal. Still began, she began to feel some peace inside her. It was very therapeutic for all of these women. Many were interviewed. And they had talked about how they'd been holding their resentment, their rage, their anger for such a long time. It was destroying them. If you ever make it to Bogota, Colombia, go see Fragmentos. Very powerful place. Making peace to those that have hurt you. And it doesn't mean that you excuse the actions, but again, this living with such pain and resentment, it, you know, and it was the, I was just powerful to see these women, the, the, one after one, saying, it's just destroying me inside. I can't live with it anymore. <clears throat> you know, it's very interesting. There's a, a Zen priest. His name is um, Norman Fisher. <coughs> He's produced a number of books of poetry and a number of books. And um, one of his projects was he translated the Old Testament, the Book of Psalms, with a Zen twist. <laughs> it's actually really good. And one thing that he did most notably was that in a lot of the biblical language, there's strong descriptors for certain people, people like they would be words like they were wicked, they were evil, they were bad, they were unrighteous. And he took out all those words, and he just wrote one word. They were not mindful. <laughs> they were heedless. They were unaware. That switch is very profound. Is there really evil? Or is there just such deep, profound unawareness and woundedness? Maybe it was a, a harmful action, no doubt. I and mean, you could maybe say an evil action. But was it from an evil place? Or was it from a place of such profound woundedness and unawareness? despair. And perhaps just as I look at when I've hurt others, was it from my evil place? It was a place where I was confused. I was lost. I was scared. I was unaware. I was acting out my, my old woundedness. It wasn't that you were evil. You were unaware. I love that powerful shift. Because with unawareness, we can do anything. And we can keep on doing it. If we become aware, maybe one day we'll see what we're doing is harmful and we'll stop. But if we're unaware, we will go around and around and around. Making peace to the times 
others have hurt me. Very difficult practice. But again, in the spirit of wanting to feel better, can we begin to neutralize these grudges that we have within us? And secondly, of course, this understanding that it came from unawareness. And you know, it's very wonderful in the teachings of the Dharma. <coughs> it says that hatred never ceases by hatred. Only love ceases hatred. Actually, there's a beautiful, and actually in America, yesterday was Martin Luther King Day. And so I want to just offer you something from Martin Luther King, who I just love. And he says, the ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral, begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Through violence, you may murder the hater but you don't murder hate. In fact, violence merely increases hate. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And I have to say, I have decided to stick to love. I know that love is ultimately the only answer to the problems of humanity. I say to myself that hate is too great of a burden to bear. I have decided to love, and if you're seeking the highest good, I think you can find it through love too. Martin Luther King, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. You know, with every person here, you know, deep down, deep, deep down, even to the one that is the, that creates the violence, deep down, we don't know what's going on way down there. And Miller Williams, he writes a poem, have compassion for those you meet, even if they don't want it. And what seems to be conceited of bad manners or cynicism is always a sign of things no ears have heard and no eyes have seen. You do not know what wars are going on way down there where the spirit meets the bones, where no eyes have seen and no ears have heard. How could you have ever known what's going on way down there where the spirit meets the bones? We just don't know what another's living with. power of love is so powerful and um, there's actually a term in the Dharma called metta chitta vimuti which means the liberation of the mind and the heart through love. And why is that? Because love breaks the barriers of pride and greed and hatred, jealousy. It actually even, you know, breaks the barriers of narcissism and egocentricity. There's a beautiful reading about love from Hafiz that says, I've learned so much. I've learned so much. I've learned so much from the divine that I can no longer call myself a Christian, a Hindu, a Muslim, a Buddhist, or a Jew. 
the truth that shares so much of itself with me that I can no longer call myself a man, a woman. Love has befriended Hafiz so completely. It has turned to ash and freed me. Of every concept and every image, my mind and my heart has ever known. Love these lines. Love has befriended Hafiz so completely it has turned to ash and freed me of every concept and every image my mind and my heart has ever known. That is what it's like to be completely obliterated by love. It has turned to ash and freed me of every concept and every image my mind and my heart has ever known. This is what it is to be freed with the powers of love, breaking through every concept an image, every barrier. Hatred never ceases. By hatred, only love ceases hatred. So even the word mindfulness, as I said, it's, it's, it's mind and heart. And of course, in Mandarin, that's the definition. So these practices of the heart, the Dharma, they speak about these as the abodes of the divine, the Brahma Viharas, the qualities of loving kindness, the qualities of compassion, the qualities of empathetic joy, sympathetic joy, and the qualities and the balancing factors of equanimity. These are the abodes of the divine, beautiful qualities of the heart. I'll read you a little bit of, um, from the Metta Sutta. And the story of the Metta Sutta is a kind of a nice one. There were some monks that um, wanted to go to a very deep, dark forest, or quiet, remote forest, I should say, in practice. And they bid farewell to the Buddha and they went to this forest for supposedly three months to meditate and they finally got there and it was a great place. There was fresh water with a spring and the temperature was just right. It was very quiet and they began to practice and everything was going very well and, and um, unbeknownst to them, there also lived in the forest up on top of the trees some tree spirits. And they had these, they were like incredibly beautiful to look at. Their voices were like a song and the smells were like sandalwood. These very beautiful beings. And so the tree spirits saw that the monks came and you know, after a few weeks, you know, they thought they were just going to be there for a little bit and then they would go, but they weren't going. And the tree spirits started getting a little annoyed. And so sometimes like uh, a monk would go and sweep the forest path and then just step away for a little bit. And the next thing you know, there's all these leaves on the path or 
the, the fire was started and all of a sudden the fire's out or the water was filled in the jug and then, and then it's gone. It spilled it like, what's going on here? The monks started getting a little, this forest might be haunted or something like that. I don't know. But they said, no, it's so nice here. We'll just continue to stay and you know we'll just, whatever. We'll work with this. And those tree spirits started getting very annoyed because they weren't leaving, even though there was mischief they were doing to kind of you know, get them out. And so finally the tree spirits decided to take a more radical action and they had the magical powers and they could transform their very beautiful, luminous-looking appearances with sweet smells and beautiful voices into very ghastly, scary, ugly, hideous looking appearances. And not only that, but they changed their sandalwood smell to a stinking stench. And their voices that were so beautiful to hear were screechy and scratchy and loud. And at a certain point, seeing that the monks were not leaving, they pounced on these monks and scared them so much they ran out of the forest fleeing in terror. And so they left that forest and they went back to um, where the Buddha was. And, and the Buddha said, hey, you, you guys are back a little bit early. I thought you were going to go for three months. It's only been about three weeks or so. And, and then they explained to the Buddha what was going on. And um, the Buddha said, I, I want you to go back and I'll teach you this meditation. And so they began to, um, well, all right, <laughs> we'll try it. And so this is actually the meditation. It's called the Teachings and Loving Kindness. And goes, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and knows the path of peace. And let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. And wishing in gladness and in safety, May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, the medium, the short or small, the seen and the unseen, and those living near and those living far away, and those born and those yet to being born, may all these beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths outwards and unbounded and freed from hatred and ill will, 
whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born into this world again. That's the metta sutta. This quality of that which softens the hardened heart. And so these monks began their walk back to the forest, lifting, moving, placing, and extending their goodwill, their loving kindness to all beings in all directions. As they began to get closer to the forest, the tree spirits looked out and saw them coming back, and they were in a rage, and without even speaking to one another, they each transformed themselves from that beautiful, luminous, sweet-smelling, sweet voice to this ghastly, hideous, scary-looking form, stinking stench, and a voice that would screech and howl and break your eardrums just about. And they got ready to pounce on those monks once and for all. They were outraged that they actually had the gall to come back into the forest. Meanwhile, the monks had no clue of that happening, and they were just lifting, moving, <laughs> placing. May all beings dwell with peace. Standing in above and below and all around and all directions, here and everywhere. And so this was going on, and they're going closer, extending their heartfelt goodwill and love to all beings. And the tree spirits are like, we're going to kill these guys. And um, it was getting closer and closer. I don't know what's going to happen here. And and, uh, they're just about to pounce on these monks. And there was then this like kind of this gentle breeze that entered into the forest. And all of the tree spirits paused for a moment. Such a benevolent, gentle feeling just began to pervade into the forest. They were so taken with this sense of kindness, softness, Without even talking to one another, they transform themselves back into their luminous, sweet-smelling, beautiful voices. Without talking to one another, some of the tree spirits began sweeping the forest paths, filling up the water bowls, lighting a fire. And they greeted those monks. They were so taken by the powers of love, that which softens the hardened heart. They asked the monks what they were practicing and could they learn. And the monks agreed, we're happy to teach you. And so the story goes, they practiced together for the rest of the time and they all got enlightened 
and they all lived happily ever after. <laughs> Never underestimate these powers of love. Never underestimate these powers of love. Hatred never ceases by hatred. Only love ceases hatred. It is said that there's 11 benefits of practicing the loving-kindness meditation from the canonical literature. And one says, you practice these meditations, you'll sleep peacefully. You'll have pleasant dreams. You will wake up peacefully. You will be loved by human beings. You'll be loved by the animals and you'll be loved by the spirits. You'll be protected from outer harm, from fire, poison, and weapons. Your mind will be joyful and unified. Now, for those of you that are really interested in this next one, you will have a bright and serene complexion. <laughs> You don't need any of those oils or creams. You'll die peacefully. You'll have a fortunate rebirth. These are the 11 benefits of practicing loving kindness meditation into the text. You know, there's a beautiful reading from Henry James. And he says that there's um, three things in human life that are important. And he says, uh, number one, the first is to be kind. And then number two is to be kind. And number three is to be kind. These are the things that are important in human life, to be kind, to be kind, to be kind. <coughs> it's even said that after the Buddha had died and Ananda, who was um, the Buddha's attendant and cousin, and, and Ananda was also gifted with, uh, he was kind of like an Olympic athlete of memorization. Because it is said after the Buddha's death that Ananda had memorized all the teachings that the Buddha taught. That's why when you read the canonical literature, you'll always read Ananda first with the lines, thus have I heard. That's Ananda. And then there's the, the sutta. And actually, um, it wasn't until 500 years later when the Pali text, which is an oral language, was transliterated into Selenese script on banana palms. So for 500 years, it was passed orally. There's a couple of monks in Burma that decided about 30 years ago, 40 years ago, to see if they could actually memorize what supposedly Ananda had memorized. And evidently, these two monks did uh, memorize the whole um, teachings called the Tipitaka, the three baskets. And a friend of mine who's a monk met one of them and asked them, well, how long does it take for you to recite from the beginning to end? And he said, well, uh, we start on day one and we recite for eight hours a day and it takes a month and a half to complete. Just to give an idea of the memorization, that's why I say like an Olympic athlete to 
remember. But anyways, uh, Ananda was um, found one time after the Buddha had died in the forest crying, and evidently he just kept on saying over and over again, he was just so kind, he was just so kind, he was just so kind. So it was a beautiful teaching, and actually one of the f funny story that's in the text about Ananda that I think is nice to hear is that um, after the Buddha's death, he was supposed to um, meet with 500 um, fully enlightened beings, and he realized at that meeting that he wasn't enlightened yet, and the meeting was the next day, and he thought, probably be good that he get enlightened because he's going to be with 500 other fully enlightened beings and, you know, he'll be kind of odd. He's not enlightened. And so the story goes, he got up extra early and he meditated all day, sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, walk, eat, sit, walk, <laughs> and by the end of the day, he, he wasn't anywhere close. He was dejected. He was sad. And he's just, you know, he just, um, you know, he said, well, He's going to have to just get some rest. And so the story goes after he finally let go, and by the time his head hit the pillow, he got enlightened. Mm -hmm. So it's a beautiful story about letting go. <laughs> See what happens when you let go. <sighs> so... Um, we can sit for a minute. on the recording. That, that, that'll, that'll be very memorable. Bob, Bob blowing his nose. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Out of compassion. And so I'll um, end with a very beautiful poem, but a little preface to it. The poem is called Kindness by American Palestinian poet. Her name is Naomi Shiab Nye. 
And I heard her tell the story of how this poem, Kindness, came about. And so this was in the early 1980s, and she had recently got married and was in a honeymoon with her husband, and they were going to travel by bus and so forth from Texas to the end, end of South America. And um, while they were in Colombia, on a bus, they were held up by some guerrillas. They were robbed. They lost their passport, all their money, as well as all the people on the bus. And also, they witnessed an Indian and a white poncho was murdered on that bus by the guerrillas and left on the side of the road. It's a very, very traumatic situation, and she and her husband managed to find their way very close. Nearby was a small little village, and they were actually greeted by a, an incredibly kind man that kind of gave them some information on where they could go get a passport, because this little village wouldn't have, they would have to go to Cali, a bigger city. And somehow it was decided that um, Naomi would stay in that village and her husband would travel to Cali and, and get uh, the passports and um, some money wired. And Naomi said that she sat in the, in the village plaza for a while and you know she's a writer and a poet and 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 she, she i guess she got out her paper and pen and then she said and this is kind of like quote unquote she said i somewhere in the universe uh, i was I, I was kind of like a secretary or a scribe and i was just to write down what was to be said and and this is her poem she said i didn't do this it came from somewhere else, and I, I was the scribe. This is what she wrote after this horrendous experience. She says, before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things and feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. And what you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go. So you know how desolate the landscapes can be between the regions of kindness and how you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop and the passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out those windows forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where an Indian and a white poncho lies dead on the side of the road and you must see how this could be you and how that he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness is the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing, and you must wake up with sorrow, and you must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows, and you see the size of that cloth. And then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. It's only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters 
and purchase bread. It's only kindness that raises his head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I who have been looking for. And then it goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. And then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. And to me, these teachings of mindfulness and heartfulness is this legacy of kindness. And we're here with people from 14, 15 different countries. May we pass on this great legacy of kindness. The world is hungering for this. May all beings discover the gateways into the heart and may there be peace. So thank you, and feel free to stretch a bit, walk a little bit, and maybe we'll ring the bell in about 20 minutes or so and have a last sit. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.